Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we're your movie podcast for discussions of things that might have missed the mark, but this week we are doing our summer catch-up, our summer roundup of things that we've been watching. Uh, these might be new things, they might be old things. Uh, we definitely are going to be talking about uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, that is one that we've both recently seen and have quite a few thoughts about. Um, but we'll definitely be talking about some of the other big releases, some TV that we've been watching, and in general, just trying to catch up with you on what's going on in the world of entertainment that is currently shut down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because movie studios don't want to pay people for the things they do. The uh, best. I don't. I don't know about you, but I'm surprised. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I just can't believe that they don't want to pay people fairly for their work. Yeah, it's shocking to me. I mean, the history of Hollywood is really one where lots of people have not been exploited. Hollywood always stands up labor. for the disenfranchised. <laughs> they always. Do. They do. And, you know, it's refreshing to see that Hollywood has really come to a state of change, um, truly grown as an industry. And uh, I guess we'll just see how all that shakes out. Uh, no, obviously, we're, we're poking fun, but it is a, a very, very volatile time in the world of entertainment. Most of the on-slate productions, the current productions, are, are now at a standstill. Even the ones that were able to sort of squeak around the Writers Guild strike by not having any quote-unquote writers on staff while they were filming the film. Very difficult proposition, but... Um, oh, we watched uh, Shakespeare in Love last night, and I'd totally forgotten the Jeffrey Rush joke halfway through where the financiers come in, Tom Wilkinson's character, and he's like, who's that guy? And he's like, oh, no one's just the author. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, that's that's still pretty much how it goes, I think. Um but uh, yes, so obviously we here at Failure Peace in our tiny way do stand with the members of both the WGA, WGA and SAG-AFTRA, uh, and we hope that their unions are able to eventually, when they're given the chance, negotiate for what they are deserved, and that perhaps these two groups can save us from the unfortunately eventual hellscape of AI-generated television and film content being splashed ad nauseum all over screens around the world. Uh, Cause trust me, people, you don't want that. You really don't. Uh, but in any case, uh, yes. So we're going to talk about some stuff. Uh, I guess I'm going to let you kick off with what you want to talk about first. Um, um, what are you in the mood to kick off with on this, this summer catch up? as we share the things that we've watched and not really had a chance to chat about yet. Let's see. Uh, this is always difficult because I watch a lot less. Um, and I typically go for older things. So one of the things I've been filling my time with is um, watching the works of a Finnish director who I've, I, I, you know, I couldn't even tell you how I got so I stumbled onto this, but um, his name is Aki Kaurismäki, and he makes independent films, made independent films. I think he's retired, but he's retired a couple of times. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then he'll I mean, the come back for one more movie. Eventually. <laughs> um, and you gotta, sometimes you got to fill the coffers. <laughs> but uh, makes like independent kind of 
dramedies because I don't want to call them dramas, even though they are mostly like interpersonal connection films, but they are quite funny. Um, so my my partner is Finnish, and I like Finnish movies, but they're kind of hard to get a hold of in the United States, so it's been very limited access. Yeah, um, I, I think a few have been surfaced by like Criterion, but yeah, yeah, it's it's not an industry that. I don't think it's an industry that translates super easily to American taste clusters. You can put <laughs> We've been it talking back. a lot about taste clusters. We've been clusters. talking a lot about taste clusters. Thank um, you, Barry, for giving us that phrase, yeah, which I'm sure was pulled directly from an executive. It's completely real. Like taste in. clusters are yeah. completely real, and that's that's what's the most disgusting about it. Um, but yeah, it's very difficult to to make the taste clusters explode outside of. Nordics with Finnish film and even within the Nordics um, the film industries kind of vary from from place to place and I would say Finnish film is more of an outlier than like the Swedish Norwegian Danish films mm -hmm. um, so of course earlier this year I saw Sisu in theater which I really enjoyed um, not yeah. the same director in any way um, you should see the movie if you like you know, action, if you like Quentin Tarantino, if you like violence, because it is extremely violent. Right, um, it was kind of marketed as a John Wick analog. I, I think that's disingenuous. I haven't watched it yet. I, I do have a copy. It's, to me, it, it um, felt definitely more like a Tarantino love letter. Um, somebody who has just kind of looked at, at what his film started in the 90s and is like, hey, we should do something like that. Um mm -hmm. So that's a great movie. But digging into Countess Mackey's films, um, they have been interesting. I, I watched arguably one of his most famous, which is a comedy film about a comedy rock band and their fake origin story called The Leningrad Cowboys Go America. <laughs> Um, nice. and it's hard to explain, uh, and that, that's the thing, like, I don't really know how to explain them, but they're just extraordinarily Finnish films. Um, and not just language, like, the language is, is what it is, it's difficult. Um, but I've watched four of his films, there was Leningrad Cowboys, uh, another one called A Man Without a Past, which was another one that I think made it international slightly um that is about man without a past was the title that i recognized from yeah. his filmography I, I i have not seen the film i don't want to mischaracterize but that was the name that i was like i i know that name um, that's a great then, that's a great movie um and another one was lights in the dusk which was my favorite of the ones that i've watched so far um and then another even older film called Drifting Clouds. And those three films make up his um, Finland trilogy. And they're sort of, they're just very quiet films. His style is really interesting because it's very minimalistic and it makes something about the way he frames things makes his movies look like they were shot 20 or 30 years before they came out. Like, if you watch some of these movies, they're made in the early 2000s, and they look like they were made in the 70s. And I don't... I'm trying to, like, put my finger on how you do that as a filmmaker. Um, but I've really enjoyed them. I mean, I don't... 
again, I, I'm having a hard time like categorizing the films. Um, but probably the best one, Lights in the Dusk, for me was about a security guard who is uh, kind of a loser, kind of down on his luck, has no girlfriend, has no no prospects outside of this job, and he is approached suddenly by this like absolutely beautiful blonde femme fatale who wants to go on a date with him and he kind of can't figure out why but he just goes along with it and it turns out she has like she's conning him so that she can okay. uh, use his status as a security guard to rob a jewelry store in the shopping mall that he works for um <laughs> awesome. and it just you know kind of a caper sort of thing i guess like it's just they're they're just interesting um i know that roger ebert saw several of them and reviewed them really well and said that they were good so you know they had some international attention but not much i mean we're talking about stuff that gets nominated for like best foreign language film and then you never hear about it again right um, and and looking at man without a past i think the reason i am familiar with it is that it did actually win yeah a best foreign language film in 02 yeah. Um, which was a time period when I was weirdly obsessed with the Oscars. Um, Y'all were. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like, we cared about those kinds of things. I don't care anymore. It was just a giant scam. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it, it won the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival as well. So that, that definitely got good international attention. Um, and that one was great as well. I mean, um, just really good performances, but... You know, that trilogy of films has been, for me, I don't want to sound like a dipshit, but um, kind of a way to familiarize myself with cultural things. Because, like I said, my partner is Finnish, and I am not. I don't know if anyone could tell from the sound of my voice. What? <laughs> what? You mean you live in Europe, but you're not European? Um, and it's... It's kind of a it's a funny culture and it's um it is very difficult to to penetrate on a personal level because it's they're kind of famously like shy people or not particularly open or communicative, I guess. And in that really is that's that's partially a stereotype, but it's also partially true. Um but I love Finland so much. I love visiting there and I love I love my partner. Wow. What a revelation. Get out of here. Uh -huh. that kind of garbage on this podcast <laughs> so this is you know part of the yeah, way that like i understand connect. the yeah. world is through movies so i watch these movies to try and try and gain some insight that maybe i i wouldn't otherwise get um totally but yeah i they're highly recommended they're very funny they're very strange um it's definitely not an american sense of humor though so some of the jokes Maybe a little bit difficult to grasp at first, I think. Um, but yeah, well, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed his yeah. stuff. Awesome. I have a lot more to go. I have just tons of his movies lined up. <laughs> yeah, he watch. has an, a ridiculously impressive filmography. I mean, he's been working for a long time, but yeah. there's there's a lot here. Well, he, uh, I he guess came out noting... swinging with an adaptation of Crime and Punishment. Yeah, that's a big that's a big swing for your first movie. And apparently it was because someone, I forget who it was, I, I read this somewhere, someone said that it couldn't be done. You can't make that into a movie. And he was like, mm -hmm. fuck you, watch me. And he yeah, did. Sure. And it Take and it's apparently talents. good. <laughs> totally. 
Um, I guess it's worth noting that um, the older mother character from Hole in the Ground, uh, Katie Oitinen, Oitinen uh, is is a frequent star. Yes. of of his films. Um, so that is is and she's where that connection was also made. Yeah. Um, she Obviously was slightly more slightly more advanced and deeper role than woman yeah, on yeah. side of road. Like it, <laughs> yeah, the the best thing that we can give her as like you know English speaking audiences is like, well, we have like an old lady you could play. You want to be the old lady who freaks out the little kid? That would be cool. We'll, we'll marry you to a Scottish guy. <laughs> It'll be fine. Um, but like in Drifting Clouds, her performance was incredible. Just just really quiet, and she plays this. Kind of ultra tough, but but cracking under circumstance housewife um, worked as like a head waitress and loses her job. And it's just you watch her like go through all of these personal failures and, and she just bears it with all this this grace. And it's it was really good. I, I really liked her performance, especially. Um, but yeah, like that's that's one thing that I've been doing. I've been working my way through through his movies. Awesome. So, if if interested, uh, look into the works of Aki Karasmaki. Good luck finding um, him. <laughs> yeah, like I said, that's going to be the issue. This is not something that's going to be streaming uh, easily in the United States, uh, so you may have to hunt around a bit, or heaven forbid, find physical copies. Physical uh, copies, which uh, could still be problematic, but uh, at this point, sounds it's, like it's really worth it. problematic here. I've I've been living in Sweden. I'm I'm going to come up on two years before before too long, mm-hmm. and I still don't really know where I'm supposed to buy movies. Okay. There's no Best Buy here. There are stores sure. that are kind of like Best Buy, but not really. Um, so I I have a really hard time finding physical media, and they don't have yeah. that Amazon two day delivery. No, no. European thing. Uh, I will say it looks like um, the best option for viewers on this side of the proverbial pond is going to be the Criterion Collection, yeah. Uh, which they do have, Leningrad Cowboys, um, <laughs> both of those. Highly uh, recommend that one. That is, that's a funny movie. La Havre, The Other Side of Hope, yeah. uh, Match Factory Girl. Uh, and then Pretty much all of his movies. like yeah. yeah, I think all of them are, are valid. And they do actually, if you just want a one-stop shop, they do have the Proletariat Trilogy, which is Ariel, Shadows in Paradise, and The Match Factory Girl as, as a single set. So you could just get that. Um, but yeah, Criterion no, I, doesn't I, ship I, to Europe. so They do not. Them. They are here in the U.S. But that means that all of those films will also be streaming on the uh, Criterion channel because uh, they're pretty much... Uh, together and it looks like they're streaming if i'm looking at the criterion channel streaming service and uh it you looks like they've got that and a few more i know i well I don't, i'm not i'm not currently i was subscribed to it when it was called Filmstruck. struck um that. and i watched i watched a lot on there but i was teaching film classes at the time so being able to to have that as a place to share clips or you know scenes from films that we weren't necessarily going to watch entirety um, was really nice. But uh, when you know there was that weird time where they were like being bought and sold, and where is it? And it's settled now. But it, it it would probably be the best place if you're interested in the the films of 
Karasamaki e. to, to go look. So I'm getting better with the know. names. Oh yeah, I'll take the rest of my life. Yeah, uh, but you just have to put that twang on it so they get mad about it. Karasamaki, <laughs> I gotcha. I love that guy. <laughs> What's the matter? Why are you looking at me funny? <laughs> we did watch. Uh, I guess our next film. Uh, I'll, I'll throw next my my next one out. Um, we did watch Asteroid City last night. That was released to video on demand. I didn't think it would be worth seeing in the theater. I kind of wish I had at this point because it is so interesting. Um, I love that Wes Anderson, every Wes Anderson movie that comes out, people, the only real response to it they have is that's the most Wes Anderson film I've ever seen. (laughs) It just, he keeps going down this road. That is very interesting. Um, It's very good, but I, uh, and I enjoyed it immensely. I was surprised by Jason Schwartzman. Uh, I've never taken Jason Schwartzman that seriously as an actor. Uh, if we're being honest, not to say that he's bad or that he doesn't deserve respect for his skill, but I guess just my relationship with Jason, Jason Schwartzman, you know, developing that post Rushmore, I, I just never really saw him as this like stoic actor, right? Just no, just didn't. Uh, he's not my favorite this, Coppola, that's for sure. No. Um, yeah, there are, there are other Coppolas that take his place, but he, he was very good in this. Uh, he was playing a very atypical character for him. He kind of embraced it. Um, but I, the thing that I don't think the marketing explained at all and probably was why people were bewildered by this film is that it has like three layers of abstraction. Okay, so the scenes in widescreen and in color are supposed to be a filmed version of a play written by a character played by Edward Norton in like Edward Casu or something like that. But this, the film that you are watching is a TV production documentary of that stage play. <laughs> so like the movie opens with Brian Cranston in a TV studio explaining that this is a television a television presentation of this popular stage production. And it just, it, it, it it's like three layers deep. It's very interesting. And they, they screw up the layers. Like at one point, Brian Cranston is in one of the color scenes standing next to one of the characters and they turn around and look at him and he go, and he looks at them and then he looks back to the camera and he goes, am I not supposed to be in this? Should I not be in this? And nobody says anything. And then he just quietly scoots out of frame. <laughs> like it's, it's very intriguing the way that it's handled. Um, and I'm not going to say that it's entirely successful. It's a, it's layers of obfuscation that don't really need to be there, but they use those moments because they'll pull out of the film and go back to the sort of tele documentary periodically to show presentations of scenes happening outside the narrative of the play that then explain things like maybe a character motivation or a relationship between the actor and you know the director of the play itself that informed what happened in the play like hong chow is in it for like 30 seconds but she delivers to the director of the play played by adrian brody an idea about how to handle a scene that we then see later had been implemented as a change. 
Um, you know, it's it's like that kind of stuff. It's it's intriguing. I mean, it's what it really does is it allows Anderson to to continue to justify setting up these static tableau shots where it's like you are looking at a diorama, right? Um, and at this point, like I think he just needs to direct stage plays. Like he just needs just just pull put the camera down and just go to Broadway and just direct a stage play because that seems to be what he wants to do, right? He wants to have that kind of finite and minute control of every single element. And it, it's it was intriguing. I enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. Um, we were watching it and. I think it was rated PG-13. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. It might have been R. I don't remember. Um, but there's a scene where Scarlett Johansson's character is... She... <clears throat> in in the stage play, she is an actor um, who is preparing for a part in a different film. And so she's running through her lines in these very difficult scenes with Jason Schwartzman's character who is just a photographer, like he has no acting experience. Um, and it's done through their sharing a cabin next to each other. So it's all done through the frame of the windows that are like lined up with each other. So they're sitting in these parallel windows. He's on one side and one window, she's on the other. And so she's using the frame of that window to do her performances. And then at one point she says, oh, this is a nude scene. And she just drops her towel and she was naked. My soul was like, whoa. <laughs> whoops sorry dude i didn't know that was gonna happen this didn't seem like that would be a thing that would happen in this film um i guess scarlett johansson just wants to be naked in movies now that's just a thing i don't know well, learn that paper i mean gotta do it but anyway uh yeah my my, my son who's you know he's almost 12 so i, I didn't really think much of it when we were sitting down to watch it and there's literally nothing else in the film that would you know prompt that i mean uh, but, he's gonna uh, see it yeah, no, I, I'm not Snow concerned baby. about that. He was the one that was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay, man. It's just just a, just a lady. That's now you got to teach look. yourself how not to react. <laughs> That's right. Just don't worry about it. Uh, but so Asteroid City was surprising. I don't need to spend any more time on it. I, I enjoyed it in as much as I enjoy any of uh, Wes Anderson's recent output. Like I said, he's, I he's kind of hit little, a, a plateau for me. That little behind-the-scenes thing about the train miniature. Yes, and that, I think that I enjoy those things more than I enjoy his movies. Where it's like, yes, show me how you made the miniature train. Totally, like it's <laughs> it's a really shocking. Um, like there are some some really elaborate, long takes involving multiple camera types of moves, like transitioning from, you know, a camera on a tripod to a camera that's now been placed onto a moving dolly and. There's, there's a lot of complexity in the shots in this film. And and so, I, again, I don't want to make it seem like it's it's unimpressive. Like, Anderson is continuing to develop himself as a, a truly remarkable filmmaker in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, it's just, I'm not sure that the entire film hung together narratively in the way that they might have hoped. And that's not a deal breaker. I mean, in many ways, Wes Anderson's films are are more focused on aesthetics than anything else. Like that is his, at the end of the day, his most uh, sort of essential. I really essential hated that element, TikTok but... trend where everybody was making their little. Oh, this day film is a series Wes by Wes Anderson. Yeah, yeah, that was stupid. 
I didn't really get that either. But I hate TikTok. I hate yeah, I'm I'm continually. Uh, I I do I don't have TikTok, and and I am continually reminded of why I think that's good. <laughs> it's, I think it's better that I not have that. Um, it's better for everybody involved, really. So it's good when you're on the toilet. <laughs> I, I bet, yeah, I, I bet it is a treat. An That's really the best use of activity. I'm on the toilet for a couple minutes. <laughs> All right, so uh, sidebar in Asteroid City. <clears throat> uh, okay, so we are in the midst of, according to most people, and probably rightly so, given box office receipts, of of the decline of the superhero film. <clears throat> Yay. Um, People, people don't seem to like those superhero movies anymore. They're done with them. Done with them, I say. There have been and, a lot. And, and ultimately, I think that is the problem. Is that um, we've been in a state of true saturation. I th- in retrospect, I think that the... I think that the tipping point was the TV shows the Marvel TV shows. I think that's where the fatigue began to set in because now rather than having to keep up with, let's say three movies a year, max, you've got three movies a year plus 20 hours of television content. And, you know, you're building this world that's requiring more and more investment from people to, to remain engaged with. And at a certain point, unless you are a hardcore viewer of this stuff and I am the most basic bitch of, those hardcore people, um, it's it's just a lot. And so um, we did have two major film releases from those studios at the beginning of the year, really more than that, but I'll, I'll really just focus on Guardians 3 and uh, The Flash, uh, which I know you haven't seen either of these, correct? Um, I watched the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So Guardians 2, great. But I haven't um, seen the third one yet. I got to work so, up to that. Uh, it it is an investment, and and of the Marvel films, I would say the Guardians films are probably some of the better ones at actually sort of evoking what I call real emotions, right? Like he's really trying to make you feel not things. Those false emotions. It, yeah, not I those fake emotions. He wants you to like really care about that raccoon. <laughs> you really <laughs> want to see that raccoon succeed. I care so and, much. And so, like I. Let's start with Flash, because uh, Flash has been just sort of like universally crapped on and not without reason. Uh, I think that Flash was rough in a bunch of ways. Like you can tell that Flash was cobbled together very quickly at the end with the pieces that they had with some rapid reshoots to try and patch the holes. Um and overall, it was, uh, if you're familiar at all with comics, it was the Flashpoint storyline, which we've seen in the show. They did it in the show. That was like season two or three, uh, three maybe. Um, and, and it's basically Flash go back in time, Flash screw everything up. Like that's, that's the premise, right? He wants to go back and save his mom who was murdered and it doesn't go well. Right? I don't know what else to say. Uh, it go bad. And, and so like they take that premise and then 
they they kind of take it in some interesting ways, i.e. Michael Keaton Batman shows up, and then they take it in some uninteresting ways, i.e. Zod shows back up from Man of Steel, and since Superman isn't there to stop him, things go sideways real bad. And, um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in it, but again, it's sort of predicated on you having seen other stuff to really kind of understand. Um, so there's, there's just, there's a lot there overall, pretty satisfied with it. I think it was an okay film. Like it was definitely better than a lot of what DC was putting out there towards the end. Let's, let's be honest. Right. Um, when will we reach the heights of Batman V Superman colon Dawn of justice again? That's the question everyone's asking. We'll never see the heights of that again. Uh, But, you know, it it was it was fine. Uh, Problematic elements. Ezra Miller. Ezra Miller was there. Ezra Miller was there a lot. And, you know, I uh, don't I don't know anything about that kid except that he sucks. Because all I ever see in the news is like Ezra Miller latest. He sucks. He's the worst. Ezra Miller, they doing crimes, they getting away with them, and you know it's like, I think it was bad press. I think if they really wanted the film to, let's say, last, I think they should have just bitten the bullet and gone back and just reshot the whole thing without. Him. Like, I, I really, I mean, as terrible as that is to say, I really think it would have been better for. It would have been better for the overall. Um, the overall success of the film and, and, you know, don't have to agree with me or not, but I, I think it would have been a, a better choice. Uh, regardless, I, I was more pleased with it than not. I think that Keaton Keaton's Batman was the star of the show. And, you know, I, I, I kind of enjoyed just seeing that and I was kind of okay with it. Uh, so Flash was fine. The CG, however, is unforgivably bad throughout most of it. Like, it is terrible. Um, there is a scene at the beginning where Flash is slow-mo rescuing a bunch of babies who have fallen out of the side of a building. Wow. And those babies <laughs> look like PS2-era cutscene oh. babies. Um, now, as a joke one of the babies winds up in a microwave. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not even going to go into it. It was a meme uh, about something that somebody said in one of the earlier movies about like, would this microwave fit a human baby like as a scale reference? And and so apparently they decided to turn that into a bit of a joke. Uh, it's, it's just real. It's just real dumb. It, it's just a dumb thing and and the the cg effects were were mostly bad like they were just terrible uh again i i don't blame the the visual effects professionals this film i imagine that what happened was they locked picture and they had like a week and a half to do most of this stuff is what i'm guessing happened and i hope everybody got paid overtime because uh, again hollywood is very good about valuing human labor in the production of these films. Okay. So, <laughs> um, but I, the visual effects supervisor on that film is literally one of the best visual effects supervisors in the world. Like dude's done like avatar and Jurassic park. Like he doesn't make bad movies and bad visual effects. So if they looked that bad, 
I'm going to go ahead and say that it probably wasn't his fault. Um, I'm going to throw extenuating circumstances out there. But yeah, it was just, it was real, uh, real okay. Right? Real okay. That's how we'll go with that. And mm. man, I, I, I don't know. I, I just sometimes think, I know that movies get a lot of investment and they have to try and make some of that back. But at a certain point, this would have been one, like they killed that Batgirl movie and didn't seem upset about it. This would have been one where I'd be like, yeah, let's just move along. Don't worry about it. Uh, Cause it's not going to matter. That's the other part. Everybody knows that DC is hard rebooting in the next year and a half. Uh, and everything's going to be different. So why go invest your money and time? Which was another thing, like theaters in America have priced themselves out of being affordable for a family. Like that's really the problem. Uh, like it is, it is a hundred bucks to go see a movie in a theater these days. Um, you can you can cheapskate your way out of that. You can take your own snacks and whatever. But like if you just want to go to a theater, sit in a nice comfortable seat, see a big nice screen, have good surround sound, um, and, and get some snacks for everybody or something, like you're gonna drop a hundo, no question. And given our current economic climate, it's just, there's no way like people just can't afford that shit. Uh, and if the movie is mediocre, like if it is not a straight banger from start to finish and everybody says so it's not going to, it's not going to succeed. Um, so anyway, uh, guardians of the galaxy three, much different experience, uh, probably the best thing that Marvel's done in quite some time. Uh, even though I really liked multiverse of madness, I thought Dr. Strange too. Very good. Um, but Guardians of the Galaxy 3, I'm not going to spoil it here because you you do intend to watch it when you get a chance, so I don't want to go too deep. But very satisfied with where Gunn decided to take the characters, how he decided to leave that story and those individuals. Um, there are definitely some heartbreak-style moments in there. Um, I that, doubt I will feel much heartbreak. No. I do no. like that little raccoon, though. That little raccoon is pretty great. And most of the heartbreak, if it is to be had, is raccoon related in that film. Uh, but yeah, it's it's it, it was very good. I in general, I like James Gunn's approach to what we sort of generically refer to as the comic book film. I think he has a lot of respect when he brings these characters into the fold. I think he brings them in because he loves them. And because he really wants to do them justice in the stories that he's telling. And um, I know a lot of people had issues. Uh, Adam Warlock does finally show up in this one as the trailers revealed. Uh, a lot of people did not like his handling of Adam Warlock. I thought it was fine. Uh, Cause everybody, nobody remembers Adam Warlock like pre infinity gauntlet where he was like an adult baby who got fooled into fighting Thor for Lady Sif's hand in marriage or something. Uh, and then Thor proceeded to beat the ever-loving shit out of him. <laughs> and, and like he was kind of a joke. Like he they built him up and he was this super dangerous guy, and he just got like immediately put in his place. Um, you know, again, you can interpret that original story as you will, but so I, I didn't they kind of he's kind of a punching bag in Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and and I didn't have a problem with it, but some people because again, eventually Adam Warlock becomes this like super powerful character in the Marvel universe, but he definitely wasn't that way at the beginning. Um, so uh, I liked GOTG, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, GOTG three, whatever they 
<laughs> whatever they marketed it as. Um, but I, I liked it. Uh, you do have to deal with Chris Pratt. I know you have issues with that. Um, <sighs> America's youth pastor. Uh, but, he really uh, is. I mean, I just get flashbacks. It's it's pretty it's pretty intense at this point. Uh, I wasn't feeling that way until he had that Instagram on Easter last year where he was like putting up a cross in his back 40 in his ranch in Montana. And I was like, oh, yeah, there we go. There it is. There it is. We found it. Um, but he's he's good in this. He's he's very he's a good star lord. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I he, he is funny. He's funny. Mm hmm was funny i'd i'm his humor doesn't age well i hope that his performance ages better in those movies than it has in other things sure yeah and and i would say it's kind of like part, yes it's kind of like jack sure. black where jack black mm -hmm. is a very funny person mm -hmm. but his performance style and his comedic style has not aged well in a majority of the things he's been in, um, there were yeah. you. You go back and you're like, oh, "Oh, this is hard to watch." Same with people like Mike Myers. Um, same with people like Jim Carrey. Yeah, where just yeah, they're it gets funny. Miss. They're funny people. Jim Carrey's also weird as shit, but funny. <laughs> However, uh, I can't totally. stand going back and watching their stuff, and I I feel like when I watch Parks and Rec now. Chris Pratt is the weakest part of the show. I would agree. Cause with I do that. go back. Yeah. I do go back and watch that show fairly often. Cause it, I don't know. It's like comfort food. Um, and, and it is getting harder to watch that character because that character's performance is like, Ugh. well, they never knew what to do with that character. That was like the very famous joke was that like, like nobody really, they were like, we don't know what to do with this guy. He was a one note joke to kick the series off because that gets Anne to go see Leslie. Yeah. But they never really knew what to do with him after that. And then they basically decided, oh, we're just we're just going to make him into this giant idiot man child goofball that we can have do anything and you'll just kind of buy it because yeah. he's an idiot man child goofball. And I mean, you know, yeah. in lieu of anything else to do. Sure. I mean, go to town. <laughs> Sounds good to me, but, but yeah, it, it was a very, um, it's a character that, like you said, it just hasn't aged well. Uh, you know, like I don't see anybody with like Jack Black clamoring to go back and watch like year one or Gulliver's travels. Exactly. You know, like nobody's demanding that. Uh, and, and there's a reason whereas school of rock where that character is built better and more closely and tightly integrated with you know what jack what jack black does um yeah sure you can handle that one that's fine uh my favorite jack black performance by far though is high fidelity like oh, that that part was made for him Perfect. quite literally and that film is brilliant from top to bottom so you know that one go back and watch and you'll still be very satisfied with the Jack Black performance. If, if you, you ever get. want to see the most beautiful balance that, that perfectly explains character foils and how they work, it's the it's, two it's the two yep. shop clerks from High Fidelity. With John Cusack in between. In the middle. Oh my God, shut up. Please <laughs> the musical stop moron talking. twins. The musical moron <laughs> twins. Yep. Uh, yeah, that movie is, is, is one of my faves. But anyway. 
so yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, it's a recommend from me. I thought it was it was well done. It it avoided the CG punchy punchy stuff that um most of these movies descend into like the flash the flash is is 20 minutes of giant cg dudes punching cg dudes uh i loved there was okay so it's really fun to see michael shannon as zod again because michael shannon is the only reason to watch man of steel because his zod is actually really good uh because michael shannon is really good and he was doing press for the movie and somebody asked him was like oh well, what was this process like and he was like oh man um that first movie took like a year and I like had to work out every day and I had to do all this stuff. This one, I was there for like an hour. <laughs> like, like he was just totally honest about it. Like it took like four days to shoot all my stuff. And it was just me in a studio with a green screen saying, stand over there and say this. And it was nice. <laughs> it was pretty cool, <laughs> but it was like, you could tell, you know, this, the, he was fully aware of like, Oh, this is a bit of a downgrade, right? Like this is, this is like, Oh, you guys don't know what you're doing kind of thing. Not to imply that Zack Snyder knows what he's doing, but I would never uh, imply yeah. such a thing. Yeah. Better. Nor to would not. I believe I mean, that you would imply that. No, <clears throat> no, we've, we've talked about Zack Snyder's army of the dead. We know that he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> when, when your main camera, your camera a has a dead pixel, a cluster of dead pixels and you just like don't care. You made me watch Suicide Squad. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh but anyway, so uh Guardians good, Flash mediocre at best. Definitely worth a home video watch if you're a, a you know, especially if you like the Keaton era Batman. If you have any sort of I'm not even going to say nostalgia, if you just like the visual elements of that Batman, like how the the suit was built and the sort of the Batmobile, the entire sort of world that Tim Burton built around Batman that was so different from everything we'd ever really seen in Batman. If you just like that and wanted to see that again, there's some cool stuff. Um, I do want to talk before we get into uh, Dial of Destiny, which I think is going to occupy most of our time here. Um, I did see Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Um, I cannot explain my affection for the Transformers series, and I fully acknowledge that these films are garbage like they are just straight trash but they are they are the kind of delicious garbage that you know you're like i wonder if that panera just threw out their day old bread and then you're like i i'd be okay with looking through their garbage right because that's still gonna taste okay yeah i mean it's been in the garbage for a little bit but it's still i mean it's probably in a bag if you open up the bag it'll be fine a little little day old pecan danish right that's probably pretty good um and that's exactly what rise of the beasts is um it is uh this one and i i especially thought this wouldn't work for me because i have like zero connection to beast wars right like i was way too old to get into beast wars by the I time watched. that rolled out um I, by all accounts it was very good and i've seen episodes of it retroactively just over the years and i've the cg for the time was very impressive the character work was pretty good i mean in general throughout the 90s and late 90s you know television for kids got better like the writing got better you know the the general animation got better and so like rise of the beasts by all accounts saved transformers like transformers was being shut down as a toy line before rise of the beasts 
So you know, good on him. But I, I just don't, you know, when you say Optimus Primal, like it doesn't really do anything for me. Like I'm not like, oh, Optimus Primal. I mean, I um, like I watched the show and that doesn't do anything for me. And oh. I get that. I do. <laughs> uh, I will say Optimus Primal and this is played by Ron Perlman. So that's good. I love Ron Perlman. I just like Ron Perlman. And hearing that vo- that big booming Ron Perlman voice coming from a mechanical monkey that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend like that's not neat. Um yeah. but so uh pluses for Rise of the Beasts, uh the human characters were not insufferable, which <laughs> is so hard. Um so hard to pull off in a Transformers film. Uh but like it's worth noting, okay, so I'll do this for you cuz I know you don't care and I'm going to I'm going to bring you up to speed on what what's up with Transformers, right? So we get Transformers in what, 07? Transformers 1? Is that 07? It was right before Iron Man came out, I think. Or in that it it was window. 2007. So yeah. that one, I watched. I walked out of that being like, wow, that was surprisingly good. Um, not good, surprisingly good. Like, I was not, I was surprised by how good it actually was. Transformers 2, disaster. Transformers 3, slightly less of a disaster. Transformers 4, absolute train wreck of a disaster um transformers first night kind of loved because it was so stupid that you couldn't help but be like wow this is stupid and that was fun in its own way because this is a podcast about movies that are bad but might actually also be kind of good transformers the last night is is the only transformers where you can say this is so dumb that it's actually fun now what Marky Mark is going to wield Excalibur in a fight against Transformers? Okay. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. Why not? Right. <laughs> um, it's terrible. But that led them to Bumblebee, which for all intents and purposes is a reboot of Transformers. It was close enough that it could still hang with those Transformers movies. Like nothing that happened in Transformers 1, 2, 3, and 4 or five was there five there were five yeah uh one two three four five is expressly being like retconned out or anything but we're so far in the past that we just aren't going to worry about it so that movie was much smaller in scale it's just bumblebee alone on earth with a little girl who wants to be a swimming diver or something um played by Haley stanfield and Haley stanfield was great um so she was another mostly insufferable human uh, so I really liked Bumblebee. I thought Bumblebee was fun. And I love Bumblebee as a character. So awesome. This is a sequel to Bumblebee set in 1994 with, I must ad- admit, a fairly good mid-90s hip-hop soundtrack, which is is the bulk of it. Like a surprisingly, I'm not going to say it's deep cuts or anything, like it's the hits, but it's a good selection of the hits. And so... 1994, it's uh, Anthony Ramos plays the main human character. He's an ex-soldier trying to get a job. His brother's sick. He's, you know, torn between his responsibilities to his family, his desire to be a success, you know, no groundbreaking stuff there. But he sort of gets pulled in with the Transformers and they go on a globetrotting adventure to discover a MacGuffin that can allow a thing to happen. We've seen this movie before, right? Like, but it was, it was fun, uh, 
Pete Davidson plays the main Transformer in this one, Mirage. And it kind of worked. I, I, I'm sad to say that. Like, I'm, I, like, my heart just sank a little saying it. But, like, it hits every one of his comedy lines got a, got a laugh out of my kids. And I was like, all right, okay, I'll take it. It's fine. Um, I enjoyed that song that he made on Saturday night live about living in Staten. <laughs> uh, I, you know, Pete, I, I, I don't hate the concept Davidson, of what you're talking about. I know who Pete Davidson is kind of, right? Yes. I've seen pictures and of him. Sure. He's been on the internet. He has a lot of, the, uh, has a lot of <laughs> tattoos. He dated Kim Kardashian. Oh, um, Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> I knew that. And Ariana Grande, both <laughs> whoopsie. Um, but so, it was it was it was surprisingly okay. Ron Perlman was great. Michelle Yeoh plays another one of the Beast Wars Transformers, which was kind of funny. I was like, "Oh, did you get this did just she because play? you blew up?" Uh, she played Air Razor, oh. the the bird, the hawk. Yeah, she was good. Uh, she had a, a nice part. Um, uh, Peter Dinklage played the main bad guy, Scourge, and he was good. I mean, he has a very sort of transformery voice, actually. Um, We're familiar with Dinklebot. We yeah, I mean, like I've played hours and hours with Dinklebot <laughs> talking in my ear before they uh, replaced so, him. Uh, but I I do want to, and this is this is a spoiler warning. There was a twist at the end that unfortunately I did have spoiled for me. It didn't really change anything, but if you do care about Transformers and other like toy lines of the past, skip ahead. I don't know five minutes, something like that. Okay, so spoiler warning, spoiler warning. Uh, at the end, after everything has transpired again, the main thrust of this thing is that Anthony Ramos's character is trying to get jo- get a job. He's trying to get work so that he can help support his family. And so he goes to a job interview at like a shipping company or something, like a, to be a security guard, something like that. And he goes up for this meeting, and it's it's a dude who's been he's been in a bunch of stuff lately. Gosh, I cannot remember his name. Um, it's one of those, it, he is one of those like, Hey, I know that guy. Uh, but he goes to this job interview and he goes up there and, and the guy like keeps hinting that he kind of knows what he's been doing, that he was in South America working with giant robots and, you know, all this different stuff. Uh, Michael Kelly is, is the actor's name, uh, from house of cards and Jack Ryan, um, He's been in tons of stuff. Anyway, he goes in this job interview. The guy keeps hinting, hey, I know that you've been up to more than you're taught. You're revealing. And then he's like, we we want to help take care of your son and we would like to offer you a job. And he's like, what is this? He's like, well, I work for a you know secret government organization. Uh, we are fighting a war against an invisible enemy. We feel like you have skills that would help us. And he's like, I don't know about all this, man. This is so strange. It's so weird. And the guy's like, it's cool. It's, you know, we're going to take care of your son, your uh, brother, regardless. Like his healthcare is going to be totally funded. We've got to. <laughs> they make some joke about having like a great dental plan or something. And then uh, guy gets up to leave, like moves a picture on the back wall, and the doors slide open, and there's this huge hangar bay behind it, populated with all of these like cool vehicles. And he's like, we just really think that you know you could help us out. And he gives him a business card. Guy flips it over. On the back is GI Joe. Right? Like oh. he works for GI Joe. <laughs> so they are 
they are are combining the universes of the Hasbro toy franchises into one juggernaut via Transformers, right? Or at least that seems to be the case. Well, Godspeed. Yeah, you know, like this this I mean, that's cool. I mean, they can't get tra- they can't get GI Joe off the ground without it. So sure, why not? At least it's an original attempt to try it, I guess. Uh, but it was neat. I mean, even my son, who has like no real formal connection to GI Joe apart from like some of the action figures I've let him play with from my own stuff, he was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." He works for GI Joe. I mean, is he going to be a GI Joe character? I'm like, I, I guess so. I don't know. Um, but so anyway, th- that was kind of neat. So. Rise of the Beasts, not incredible by any stretch, but uh, a fun romp. I would say that if you if you want to forget that all of the Michael Bay Transformers exist, and that would be fine, uh, then I would say that just looking at Bumblebee and this new Rise of the Beasts. I've only seen fine, so. Transformers 1 and 2. Um, I've only seen the second one because you showed it to me at my house. <laughs> Yeah. Um. You came over and you were like, "I need you to see this." Yeah, I need you to uh, see this garbage. <laughs> this absolute trash. <laughs> and and the first Transformers, I have pleasant memories of seeing that. I mean, it was it was Michael Bay, but I didn't didn't have the worst time. Um. So yeah, I I have no idea what's going on with Transformers. Anything. <laughs> and and I think that's fine. Um. I don't. I don't think you need to know what's going on with Transformers to. Yeah, I don't think it would enrich life, my life. You know, uh-uh. anyway, probably better if you don't really. <laughs> um, speaking of things that did not enrich my life, I finally watched. This is an older one. I watched House of Gucci. <gasps> the Gucci. Um, and I brought it up because uh, Ridley Scott's back in the news again. He is. With his latest trailer. Napoleon. Napoleon. <laughs> um, Starring uh, Joaquin Phoenix as <laughs> Napoleon. Because <laughs> well, he was not? so good in Gladiator that, you He's know, so we'll just bring him back. And House for, of Gucci. No, that and, was, that, he wasn't. Uh, yeah, he wasn't in House of Gucci. He wasn't in House of Gucci. That Everybody was else was. Yes. Um, yes. Which I didn't like the movie. I, and I think part of it is that I I was a child when this stuff happened and we're like not wealthy people. So no. What happened to the <laughs> the Gucci fashion house family did not really have any impact on my my life when I was 10 years old. Sure. Um yeah. but I don't know, I like torturing myself and seeing all of Ridley Scott's movies. Because uh-huh. I, I mean, you know, we're all a little bit masochistic at heart. Sure. Um, and I, it's just, it's not engaging. I don't know what it is about the movies he's choosing to make now, but I don't like them. I just, I don't get it. I'm like, why are, why did you make this movie and not someone else? <laughs> and I think that's, that's kind of where I've been at with David Fincher for a bit too. Yeah. Is what are you doing? That. It doesn't, these guys are such pros. Like, I mean, the way Ridley Scott talks about filming, there are a couple of Hollywood insider 
roundtables with other directors. And there was one a couple of years ago, and I, I think I've probably talked about it on this podcast before, where it's like these directors and they're all like talking about their process and like, oh, you know, I go through this and I, I, I you know, our pre-production schedule is this long and I'm sort of looking at all of these elements and I'm planning this and I'm planning that. And then it gets to Ridley Scott and he's like, I don't know, you plan it, you shoot it. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's just, you know, we've, we've talked before about Ridley Scott and his, his approach to filmmaking since he came out of the world of commercials in the 1970s, he has this very workmanlike approach. And on certain projects, that workmanlike approach works in his favor, right? Like Alien, right? That lived-in world where it's not slapped together, it's not slapdash. Nothing that Ridley Scott does is slapdash. But he just has this very sort of like, I'm not concerned about making art, even though he is. I'm not concerned about all of that stuff. I just sit down, I, I take the script, I plan the film as I want to do it, and then I go do it. And that's fine when you have a project that's just like amazing, right? When it's a gladiator level project. But for these like smaller, basically interpersonal dramas that he's been making, I know the last duel was, was pretty big in scale, but that just, I mean, that seemed more like a kingdom of heaven to me than a gladiator, you know, like, eh. mm. Uh, and it also seemed like Ridley Scott's sort of weirdly European take on Rashomon, where we're going to look at the same story from these three different perspectives. And it's like, dude, like, <laughs> don't do you, that. What are you doing? <laughs> like, don't we do don't this. need that. We don't need this. No. And, and you, you know, again, not to fault that film. I, I've heard that it's amazing. I just don't have any desire to watch it. And that was my same reaction with House of Gucci. Like, um, I saw the trailers. I had no desire to engage with it because I have zero connection to those people or to that brand. And I mean, I own a Gucci perfume. Does that count? Sure. Yeah, totally. Um, You're in the so house I'm, of Gucci, baby. I am basically high fashion, <laughs> classy. Uh, I will say all of the performances were great. And and Ridley Scott is, it is amazing the performances he is able to get out of people in truly mediocre projects. Like um, that is consistent. Yeah. Lady Gaga was wonderful. I love her anyway. Um cool. She was she was really great. She was very engaging and and kind of like easy to love, easy to hate at the same time because you do kind right, of you do she's hate her. Kind of the villain of the. She's film, the villain yeah. of the piece. Um, Adam Driver was adorable, like so likable, way more likable than I think Maurizio Gucci was in real life. Sure. Yeah. Um, and and to that end, I I feel like it was not realistic. I'm like, no one is this charming and sweet and sincere that's not possible yeah um i love al pacino but i'll i have another thing to say about al pacino after this mm -hmm. uh i fucking love that man i love him I yeah. love, he's crazy he's, he's out of his mind he's one of those actors that kind of i watch him with the same fascination that i do nicholas cage where it's like i just never know what i'm gonna get but it's going to be great. I'm going to have such a good time watching it, but it's going to be just, just off the rails. Mm -hmm. um, so he was wonderful. Uh, Jeremy Irons, wonderful. Jared Leto. Mm -hmm. Fucking sucks. That guy sucks. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I used to be, I used to be cool with Jared Leto. I thought he was all right. Uh, now, I don't know, man. Um, he's he, he's just kind of Ezra Millering himself all over the place. 
but or maybe I mean, maybe Ezra Miller, Jared Leto'd themselves. Maybe that's, fair. that's what it was. I think maybe Jared Leto has sucked a lot longer than we knew. Uh yeah, I think so. Um but he played Paolo Gucci, who was an eccentric person from what mm-hmm. I've read. Now this is like me going back and saying, like, okay, Gucci. I I, I knew the guy got killed, but I I don't know, I don't fucking know. Um so I I looked into this performance because it was off putting. In a movie that's like star-studded cast, talented people, you have somebody like Jeremy Irons who who brings gravitas to like all of his mm-hmm. roles. He's an oh. actor. Okay, to to briefly segment back to Flash. Jeremy Irons shows up as his version of Alfred in that movie for like two scenes, less than two scenes. And what a breath of life they were. I was like, oh. yes, Jeremy Irons, Alfred, Yay. you were so great. And you didn't get to be in these movies. That sucks. It's so good to see you one last time. Uh, it was it was awesome. I was like, yes, more Jeremy Irons, please. And and he was he was fantastic. But this performance from Jared Leto was weird. Mm. It was so over the top that it felt cartoonish against these other performances that were so full of like subtlety and and richness and like real people. This one felt like he was making fun of someone. And this is oh, me not even sure. knowing who that who this person is supposed to be, but I'm like there's no way that this is right. And I looked into it and it wasn't. Apparently people were offended by his performance upset. saying like this was ridiculous. Um Paolo Gucci was not like this. Yeah. Um, and then on top of it, they put him in the worst makeup. That was the thing that I I was not vibing with is that makeup, even in the trailers. And then I there was like a scene between him and one of the other characters that they put online to be like, oh, look at this. And I watched it and I was like, that looks so bad. You like, could have like just found a, an actor who's better and looks. Yeah, like that. just find an actor that looked like the guy, or or that you know at least evokes something of his personality, even if he doesn't have the same physical carriage. But but did you see the movie? It, it was an early pandemic uh, HBO Max release called what was it? The Pretty Little Things or Little Little Pretty Things? It had Denzel Washington in it too. I didn't see it, but I, I um, recognize the name. And that one too, he like insisted on being in a weird wig and he had like this weird thing that made him look fatter and i was like what are you doing yeah nothing about the character needs this like you don't you don't have to do this to evoke the danger of this guy if if that is what you're trying to do like you can just be yourself i mean wear a wig or something if you want longer hair yeah i guess but like it was it was just weird and it seems like he's trying to do that whole Johnny Depp the makeup makes the character thing and I am just not down with that like I it Johnny not Depp worked too. for Johnny Depp so why would you go down this road I mean I know there are people that say ultimately that having things like that being able to put on a costly literal costume um is you know, it helps you get into the character and stuff, but this is more than that. This just seems like beyond that. It's yeah, because it's strange. Everyone um, was in a costume. 
Like it's a period sure, piece. Yeah, yeah. So, Everybody's so there was, dressed and there was lots of seventies and eighties and nineties, sure, yeah. you know, costumery. And of course these are like larger than life people with very, you know, kind of eccentric personalities. If I guess like you'd have to be to to work for like a fashion house for a living. Sure. But it stood out and in the worst way possible in the way that Jared Leto seems to stand out in everything where it's like, you're ruining the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like um, you're making this about you and it's not about you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was, that was really the worst part of it. Overall, I was, it was just kind of lukewarm. It wasn't, it wasn't very good. Like it wasn't great. Um, of course, Ridley Scott, you know, the way he films stuff, he makes anything engaging where it's like, oh, this oh, totally. this yeah. this looks cool, um, but ultimately it just—I don't know why he made this movie. I don't know what compelled him to take this project and do it. Um, maybe he's talked yeah. about that somewhere. I'm honestly, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> um, well, and, and that's part of it—is he doesn't really talk. I mean, he just talks about these being the films that he chooses like he doesn't really talk much about like oh i was really inspired by this script i think he sees something that he can shoot he understands it he you know sees it from a budgetary standpoint of how much is this going to take and where are we going to have to go uh, i i don't know i just i don't think ridley scott is making choices with his films it, okay everything comes back to spielberg Ridley Scott's <laughs> career feels like he has been early 2000s Spielberg for the last 20 years, right? Yeah. Just I'm just taking projects, right? People are putting stuff on my desk. I'm like, yeah, War of the Worlds, sure. Why not? You know, Minority Report. I have yeah, softened so much on War of the Worlds. I know. Yeah, it's not a bad movie. Uh, that weird Tim Robbins part in the woods still just 100% stupid, but... sucks balls. <laughs> but the rest of the movie is fine. And it does have one of Spielberg's most engaging wonders with the yeah. uh, the, the highway chase in the van. Like, that is a great wonder. Oh, my God, that's so good. But, uh, yes, like, but it was like Spielberg, he was at the height of his game. He had gotten his Oscar nod. He had, you know, done his big war movies. And now he's like, I can get the budgets I want. Give me projects. What do you want to, what are we doing? And then it seemed like David Kep would just roll up every couple of weeks and be like, Hey, I read this book. It was okay. You want to do this? And people were like, sure, whatever, let's go. And, and it was just, he's just churning through stuff. Right. So it feels like to me a bit. And, and again, we're really getting into like Hollywood philosophizing here. I, I believe firmly that because at this point now, if I believe correctly, Ridley Scott has lost both of his brothers. Um, and and Tony Scott's death, of course, was a suicide. A genius. And it was tragic. And Tony was a genius. Tony is the architect of the modern action film. Michael Bay would not be able to Michael Bay all over Michael Bay things if yeah. Tony Scott had not laid the runway for him to go. And... I I personally think that Tony's death changed Ridley's relationship with Hollywood and his relationship with film. I I think something I'm not going to say something broke. I don't think that's it at all. I, I can't think, imagine how hard that would be. I just I just can't like emotionally speaking. I don't I don't know. I that yeah that would break me. 
Yeah, like I, I just, I think he's he's taken it. He knows that he's got this much time left, or or I don't know if he's thinking this way, but he's like, you know, I'm just going to take these projects that you know, if they interest me, great. If they don't, it's still something I can execute on, and I can finish it, and I can do it, and it's fine. Um, I I don't know. I I think it's just a very interesting, you know, because if you look at everything that he's done, the last really truly solid like i would say near great movie was probably the martian in 2015 yeah and and movies like the martian are what we want from ridley scott generally speaking you know like you know when i when i saw that movie i was like yes yeah he's back so good i mean like that's a movie (laughs) i saw it in a theater and that may be one of the last movies aside from like weird marvel shit or whatever that may be one of the last just like movies where people like stood up and clapped and cheered at the end like straight up, you know, like, so, I mean, that's, that's what he does. And, you know, but if you look at it, we've got all the money in the world, which of course got into all of the Kevin Spacey controversy. Cause they just freaking CG'd him out of the movie <laughs> after all those accusations came out. Um, you know, and then we get, I mean, it's all the money in the world. He takes a four year break cause he got married again in 2015, I think. And and then we get last the the double whammy of Last Duel and House of Gucci in 2021, and now we get Napoleon and Gladiator Two, which again is like okay, it's Gladiator Two doesn't no matter how good Gladiator Two is, it is always the moment you say those words, I'm just going to think of a direct video sequel from <laughs> from tw- you know 2004. It's like <laughs> Scorpion King Part Five. You know, it's like oh. Oh man, that doesn't seem good. We don't disparage um, the Scorpion King on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Never. Uh, you know, but it's it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, he's he's just he's just not taking those kind of like big bombastic. I mean, they are bombastic in their own way, I guess, but they're just they're not films that we would typically associate with Ridley Scott. House of Gucci especially seemed like something like anybody could direct this. Like Ridley Scott doesn't have yeah. to do this. Um I'm sure he elevated it, but still. He did. Whatever. And and like the the things that I love about his movies, it was all there. Um I guess it's if I were a famous Hollywood director, oh god willing, um mm-hmm. I would just do whatever the fuck I wanted all the time. So I can't really fault him for just making the movies that he wants to make. Sure. But yeah. selfishly, as a film viewer, I want more like the Martian and and less like House of Gucci and I just don't ever want to see Jared Leto's stupid face ever again yeah I don't know Um, yeah just another super problematic dude I I don't know like I I want to be able to divorce the work from the dude but Leto in specific seems to make that very very difficult he's a bad dude and he makes bad stuff he makes bad roles you're bad at acting and you're a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> the one two punch of success in Hollywood. <laughs> you're terrible at, you're terrible at being a good person and you're terrible at acting. You suck both ways. Rise to the top. You, you win. <laughs> Hollywood will love you forever. <laughs> uh yeah. Uh so it's it's on the list. It's one that I've kind of da- you know danced around because I do love Adam Driver. Um we've talked about that before. I think Adam He's Driver is and it's fun to see him do 
stuff that seems so outside his wheelhouse now. And I like actors that intentionally go like, oh, I don't want to do that again. I'm going to do this instead. And Driver seems very much at a point in his career where he he refuses to be cast into a particular role, which is what Hollywood keeps trying to do with him. They keep trying to mold him into this thing. And he just keeps going, no, thank you, uh, which I think is good. That's That's a better place to be most of the time. Um, all right, so uh, that's House of Gucci. Uh, not necessarily a recent release, but new to us. Um, the other two films that I wanted to hit before we get to Dial of Destiny are uh, two streaming-only releases. And uh, the first is one that we just watched. It just came out on Netflix, which I have been almost completely cut off from Netflix. There has been nothing on that service that I've been interested in for quite some time. Uh, a few things here and there, like, you know, Jeff Lemire's Sweet Tooth and stuff like that, but very minimal. Um, but they released an animated film named Nimona uh, by the author N.D. Stevenson. It came out in the mid-2010s, like 2015, uh, who was also uh, one of the creatives behind Lumberjanes, uh, a very good uh, comic book series from Boom Studios, and uh, also was one of the... the I'll say lead creatives because I didn't know her, didn't know their specific role um, on the She-Ra reboot show that Netflix did, which is excellent. Like it is super good. Um, just, I, I don't, I, I can't articulate that it, it was a surprisingly good show very much on the level. And this will sound like an insult. It's not uh, with the, my little pony show, uh, the rebooted one that Lauren Faust did. Uh, back you know 2012 or 2013 uh just an excellent animated series so indy stevenson so this this movie like many films caught in the midst of the disney fox merger had a very interesting road to publication uh so it started at 20th century with blue sky studios the the ice age people and they had it pretty far along disney bought 20th century fox and the first thing that I will say is that this film, Nimona, is a relatively obvious trans allegory. Mm. Uh, Indy, Indy Stevenson is a trans author, uh, and this was composed during their senior year. This, in essence, was their senior year college thesis. And you can tell that the main character of Nimona, who is a sort of shapeshifter, is is very much someone who is is allegorical for someone who who feels very transient within their own body. Right? I don't know what my default form is, and I question whether I should have one. Right? And uh, it's beautifully done. It's I'm not going to say it's unsubtle. There are certainly some pointed moments where the characters have discussions that sort of express these ideas, but it's beautiful. It's fun. It's incredibly well-written, like smartly written, great snappy dialogue, um, beautiful animation. Again, I, I have, we've talked before I've gone on record. I think Pixar's approach to animation while beautiful is now boring and kind of tired. Uh, they solved it. All their, all their math computers came together and computed the best maths and now can produce the computerist humans that have ever been computed, but they look boring and they're stupid and they need to figure out to do. I don't go to a film to see sterile 
like great greatly lit representations of stuff right i go to animated films to see beautiful art and i'm not going to say that pixar's films aren't art they are and i know they are labored over intensively but again i will say that dreamworks and what dreamworks is doing right now is way more exciting my kids watched uh puss in boots the last wish again last night we watched that yeah i love that movie that movie is boss it is so good it's really it was really oh my god it's so good like performances are bangers that little animation style yeah pepito you know you know that's harvey gillen right yeah from what we do in the shadows what a great performance um florence Pugh as uh goldilocks john mulaney before all the coke cocaine and the and the rehab playing uh uh who was he the bad guy uh, anyway, yes, Puss in Boots. But that that animation style, engaging with it, artistically acknowledging this is animation, right? Like this is an animated thing. That means that we can break all the rules. Yeah. Um, I think is where Pixar needs to go. They did a little bit in Soul with their like non-two-dimensional representation stuff. One of the Richard Ayoade characters from that movie. But they've they really need to find their they need to find their artistic juice again. And and hopefully they can. Apparently, Elemental has been kind of low-key maintaining for the last three or four weeks, so it's going to wind up being relatively successful. If the budget wasn't so high, it would be a success, but they spent crazy amounts of money on that movie, and and they're just going to struggle to make it back. (laughs) I saw a, a tweet the other day. Somebody was like, why do production budgets of movies need to be this big? And it may have been a discussion on Dial of Destiny now that I think about it. Like, why do we need to spend 300 movies, $300 on these movies, or $300 million on these movies? Why can't we just, why can't we just spend 100 or, or 120 Like, why do they have to be so expensive? And an actor got onto there. He says, oh, a producer explained this to me years ago. And, it, and somebody was like, well, what did they say? He said, well, it's much, it's very hard to steal a million dollars from a movie that has a budget of 10. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, that's true. That's the... That's what it is. Like you can't steal a million dollars when you've only got a ten million dollar budget. When you've got a three hundred million dollar budget, nobody you can notices that twenty, million. and no one yeah. will know. And I thought That's it was a very interesting perspective. I think it might have been. I think I think it might have been Mark Hamill that said that. <laughs> Which I believe that I tr- I believe Luke Skywalker. That's the button Everything that I'll that wear. Says. That's the button that I'll wear during the next political election. <laughs> I like Luke. Um, anyway. But so uh, Nimona is great. Uh, if you have a Netflix account, you need to watch Nimona. It is it is a astoundingly good animated film. And the fact that uh, in this particular case, Netflix or at least the Netflix animation studios were able to rescue that project that probably would have died because Disney, when they bought 20th Century Fox, dropped it like a hot potato, reportedly because of the, the trans content, uh, which does not surprise me at all. Um, but Netflix was able to resurrect it and give it give it life, and boy, golly, I'm glad they did. It's it's great, really good. Um, and then uh, the last one that I would address was Tetris, uh, which I know we may have talked about briefly before, but I did want to sort of mention it again because what it seemingly kicked off, or seem, what I think it kicked off, was this recent spate of films that are about brands, yeah, right? Like how. Here's how we created the Nikes. And it's like, okay, I mean, there's drama to be mined 
from pioneering in an industry, right? Like at some point in the future, I'm sure an AI will write a movie about the pioneering founders of AI companies and how they changed the world. Like I'm, I'm sure it's coming, but uh, Tetris worked where I think a lot of these more recent efforts, although, I mean, I've heard air is fine. I'm sure it's a good movie, um, but we got like that flaming hot Cheetos movie. And, and supposedly there are more of these coming like brands being like, here's where Hershey's chocolate came from and all this stuff. And I'm like, what do we do? Like, what? What? Who wanted this? Who asked like, for this? Are we really going to let these massive corporations spoon feed us that their existence is actually this, like, heartwarming story <laughs> that deserves praise? Like, look, we've made billions of dollars off the backs of this, of, of these successful basketball players um, as a shoe company. Aren't we just fucking heroes? Aren't we just heroes, guys? And buy it's some like, shoes. It's like Phil Knight is an ass. Like he is a dick. Uh, you know, like there is nothing redeeming about that dude, uh, in my opinion. And to be fed that these are like the heroes of corporations trying to help the little guy, right? Look at what we did for rookie of the year, Michael Jordan. <laughs> it's like, yeah, did you though? I mean, I'm glad. I mean, I am thoroughly pleased that Michael Jackson has also made, or Michael Jackson, uh, <laughs> that Michael Jordan has also made, you know, hopefully boatloads of money off of the use of his, his image in the Nike shoe wear brand. But I, I just don't know if we need a, these corporations feeding us all of this and this self delusional information about how great they are. I mean, it's really as bad as when we get on Hollywood for constantly voting for Oscars for movies about how great Hollywood is like, yeah, we get it. You like the industry you're in. Stop it. Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's weird. Uh, Tetris is adorable uh, because Tetris. While it there is, is about, a story there, there is a story mostly about these two weird sort of out of place computer programmers trying to, I mean, in essence, forge a friendship that has that lasted a lifetime between these two guys um, around this, you know, world famous game. So I have no doubt that the Tetris corporation or whatever benefited from the telling of that story. But at the same time, that movie, while it was built around the expression of a brand is really about these two people uh, and and the others maybe they do the similar similar things, but yeah, Tetris uh, is more along the lines of something like House of Gucci, where it's telling a very specific story that does sort of revolve around a brand, a thing. Right, but it's but not it's about not, the hyping of the brand, right? You don't watch of House movie. of Gucci and then go out and buy a bunch of Gucci handbags, right? And you don't do that. And there's nothing about Tetris where you get to the end of the movie and it's like, hey, thanks <laughs> I'm for watching. Go buy, this go game buy called Tetris. Tetris. <laughs> like, no, we know you already have Tetris. Just download it on your phone. Nobody cares. Uh, so it's just, it's this weird phenomenon. And and like most things in Hollywood, it comes in waves, right? It's like, oh, somebody's making a movie about a brand. I got to make one of those. Um, and and it's just, it's very strange. Similarly, uh, another thing, this is television and not, not movies. But I've noticed a lot more like, cutesy um, 
grand critique. Uh, Disney has always been really, really bad about this ever since the, the 2000s. But most recently, I watched um, the latest season of Black Mirror, which started mm-hmm. with an episode that was nothing but a big teehee poking fun at Netflix. But it's on Netflix. So it's mm-hmm. like, well, is this just Netflix being like, ha, see, we can laugh at ourselves. That's why right. you should continue to use our service because we're genuine. We get the jokes. We encourage just, you to joke. Just don't just stop. Because our co-CEOs share a hundred million dollar yeah. CEO compensation. And don't worry about that. It's it's kind of a, a similar like insincerity that comes across um, that I didn't. I don't enjoy. I don't like it when when brands or when when big corporations. But really, it's corporations. It's not brands. Because a brand yeah. can mean anything, but corporations doing this and trying to like be cute or relate to people in some real way just always feels a bit phony to me. Even even when it's like Charlie Brooker writing an episode that's making fun of Netflix, it's still done with Netflix's express consent and right. encouragement. And, and budgetary involvement, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, it just it feels very unearned when I'm I'm seeing all of these corporations try to engage with their their audience in that way. I hate it. Yeah, I mean again, it's it's Wendy's tweeting goofy things. It's you know, it's like trying to make these faceless, nameless corporations seem like entities that you can trust, right? Yeah. It's it's what led to and in many ways perpetuates the console wars where it's like, I'm an Xbox yeah. guy. I'm a Sony guy. It's like, no, those are meaningless. <laughs> no, words. you aren't like you're not there of those things. You are a consumer of a product. And if you prefer one of those products over another product, more power to you, but you're not a part of this, right? Your $500 investment in a PS five does not make you part of Sony other than you contributed to the bottom line, right? Like, uh, it's, it's just, and it's not a very really in, weird... in that meaningful of a way. Like the, the individual contribution <laughs> no. is never going to be recognized in the way that you think it is. I, I mean, it's tribalism. I mean, we've, we've discussed that tendency in human beings to feel the need. I mean, in, in a, a society in which we are the, so connected, most of us are still incredibly isolated. And so, we we don't really have those strong social support structures that might have existed in the past, so we're reaching out for virtual social support structures now. Right, we're trying to connect ourselves with brands and ideologies that we vibe with, if you will, uh, in order to to feel that sense of community that we can't obtain via our our you know day to day personal lives. That's that's my theory behind it anyway, and I don't think that's necessarily an original one. Um, you know, I, I think that's why you've got. Uh, you know, Marvel versus DC. Like this has always existed because you want to feel a part of something. And the the downside is, is that before these little groups would crop up and then sort of self-maintain, right? Like, you know, the Marvel fans would just sort of hang out with the Marvel fans and they'd do whatever they were going to do. But what so many of these corporations have figured out is that if you foster this, right? If you If you contribute to this and you build this, you can turn it into a vehicle for you to, control yeah right and manipulate and and it's it's in some ways it can be a good thing and in other ways it can be a terrible thing and it's it's 
in most I feel ways, like we're verging on the terrible. Terrible. You know? yeah. yeah. Mainly terrible. So I've got a couple of TV shows, but I, I think we've we, we I may hold on some of those, maybe just do a quick hit at the end, because I do think that this discussion of brands and tribalism can lead us directly into a discussion of Indiana Jones and the and dial of destiny. destiny. Indiana Jones and the bifocal <laughs> readers. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Walker. Um uh man. Uh we saw this um I guess the opening weekend. It was, it was that Sunday. And I saw it the uh, following weekend, right? Yeah, you were you were kind of right after, I think. And <clears throat> Uh, okay, so let's let's lay the groundwork. We are going to spoil the ever loving crap out of this thing because we've both seen this of of this slate of big summer blockbusters. This is the one that we've both both seen at this time. So I do kind of want to give us a chance and space to talk about it. Um, but the basic premise: if you have not engaged with the media, and apparently most people didn't, like nobody went to see this thing, uh, or at least not the numbers that anybody was hoping for. Uh, Dial of Destiny is the the quote unquote final ride for the Indiana Jones character, uh, in which we see Indiana Jones uh, along with his his previously unmentioned goddaughter go on a globe trotting adventure to recover the uh, the Dial of Archimedes. They have a long name for it that I'm sh- I'm sure is historically accurate in the film. I didn't remember it, and I don't really care to. Um, but uh, it is it is wanted by a group of Nazis. I guess we don't need to hide that. There's really no secret to their. This Nazi. one's about Nazis, everybody. Uh, this is, it's a Nazi one, guys. We did it again. We got the Nazis in there. Um, but these are secret Nazis. These are Operation Paperclip Nazis that have come over and pretended to be uh, Americans to, to to obtain all of our stuff and then take it. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and uh, and it's 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 fine. Uh, so spoilers from here on out. We could we could verge into any territory. Uh, go watch the trailer if you want a deeper synopsis. Indiana Jones fights Nazis on trains, on planes, on boats, in cars, like Truck every trucks. every kind of vehicle that Indiana Jones could fight a Nazi in. He fights a very a Nazi vehicle in. heavy movie. It's a super vehicle heavy movie, dude. Uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So. Uh, in any case, uh, this was fine. I did not hate it. My family enjoyed it. Um, the main problem is, is that there are large chunks of this movie that are boring. Um, not, not boring to the point that I'm like, oh, I'm checking my watch. I want to get my phone out, um, or anything like that. But there's just long stretches of, of not a lot happening. And that is uncommon for an Indiana Jones film, even a bad Indiana Jones film like Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, uh, which, again, we've talked about before. Neither of us think is especially bad. Like it's a it's a 45 to 60 minutes of that of Crystal Skull is great. Like it's really good. Honestly, if they would just, just remove sh- that huge chase scene in the jungle with the mm-hmm. fucking monkeys. Yep. You would remove a lot of that film's big issues yeah like the weird jungle green screen chase scene that doesn't even need to be there like and structurally speaking for an indiana jones movie shouldn't be there like that's not where that chase scene 
should well, the, be. Because the chase scene, <clears throat> they already had it. It was in the beginning, and it was fantastic. And it was and fine. We were on a yeah. motorcycle, and it was awesome. Yeah, the college, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The college chase scene is probably one of the finest chase scenes that Steven Spielberg has ever filmed, at least up until this point. Um, so, yeah, uh, Crystal Skull, and I know the Red Letter Media guys, we both watched that video. Crystal Skull is great up until the third act, or, or go- at least good up until the third act. Uh, Dial of Destiny is good up until the third act, and then be- or is is well, let's say bad to mediocre up until the third act, and then it gets good. Uh, it's it's almost a flip. It's very interesting, yeah. but um, in many ways, to me, this feels like a project that has been in development for a decade. There are like seven script writers. It's not that many, but it's a lot uh, for an Indiana Jones movie. Like, remember, the first Indiana Jones movie was written by Lawrence Kasdan. Just one. Just one guy. Um, and this is like the Butterworths, because uh, didn't Jez, Jez Butterworth, one of those guys helped on Last Crusade, I think. But he, anyway, um, it's the Butterworth brothers who are obviously put on as the initial screenwriters to develop the screenplay based on Lucas's overall story, which again, I think it was more Spielberg this time, but another writer is Mr. uh, Echoes himself. That's right. You should have left Mr. David (laughs) Kep coming back out of the, you should have left disaster swinging uh, with an Indiana Jones. Uh, And again, that feels like when Spielberg moved onto the project, he would have undoubtedly brought Kep Kep worked on the screenplay for crystal skull as well. Uh, and so I'm sure kept it a pass. And then because James Mangold is James Mangold, he would have done his own version when he took the project over after Spielberg exited as director, at least. So just a lot of hands in the pot. And you could tell that every single time this movie was scripted, it came with a set of must do's. At least that's what it feels like to me. They said, Indiana Jones must do A, B, C, D, E. And I'm sure that these are all requests from Ford, requests from Spielberg, and then requests from the studio to... Because here's the other thing that I don't think people are talking about. Is that the landscape of what it means to be an action film is completely different than what it definitely what it was in the late night in the early nineties with last crusade or late eighties. And certainly since the crystal skull, like the action film genre is an entirely different genre now, in my opinion, John wick changed it. The fast and the furious movies have changed it like for better, for worse, mostly for worse. Everything is worse, (laughs) but it's bombast, right? Cause here's the thing. Right. If you go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, there ain't, there ain't a ton of shit that happens to that movie from an action standpoint. Right? And it was the shorter. Mo- <laughs> and it's sh- so short. So short by comparison. Oh, God. Right. It's like, so, so good. let's go through the action, the actual action beats of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Opening Temple Chase. Right. And not even like the engaging into the temple, just the coming out of the temple, right? The rolling ball into the chase with the Havatos, right? Yeah. So first action sequence, 
when does the second action sequence begin? Mm, what? Uh, mm. I mean, yeah, the bar setting the bar on fire. Uh, yeah. Is that yeah. the next thing? That's the next thing. Is that was is and that's a while later. That's like there's a lot of minutes. people talking. Twenty minutes, you know, probably fifteen minutes. But you got setting the bar on fire. Then there's nothing until the the Cairo street chase. And and even speaking, like there was there was space in between the action sequences, but also oh, the totally. action sequences were very short. Right. They're they are. I mean, and this is a Spielberg thing. I mean, Spielberg just hones his action sequences down to the absolute bare minimum. There's no wasted shots in a Spielberg action sequence. And, um, and there's no disorientation. It's always really mm, clear. Like, all of the action is yeah. is, is choreographed. Um, I think that's what, especially with Indiana Jones, makes those stunts so memorable. Mm-hmm. Is that I they agree. they're very clear. It's it's clear on camera what is happening, and it's it's not drawn out. You don't have to have tons of explosion and fire and <laughs> things crashing into other things. Like no. you just yeah. the frame is empty of all of that extra bullshit, which is nice. Right, but the modern action blockbuster, I mean, you just you have to have more. Fucking, Michael it's Bay. just more. His fault, right? And, and it kind of is. So I can see a studio executive or production executive sitting, watching a screening of this where it's like this stripped down thing and being like, is that it? Like, but you know what? They put a car in space, you know, like for Fast the Furious 9 or whatever. <laughs> like where, when's Indy going to go to space? You know, like oh. I can see those kinds of conversations realistically happening because you have to find a way to meet your audience. And the problem is, is that the Indiana Jones audience, right? The people that you're really catering to, the people that love Indiana Jones, that's a style of action adventure film that hasn't existed for 30 years, 40 years, right? Because action movies have moved on from that. And so to do a throwback piece, a fully throwback piece, you risk not satisfying the general audience that comes in and says, I wonder if we're going to put this dude into space, right? Because <laughs> those people exist. And, and so what you get with Dial of Destiny, which this is still better than Kingdom of Crystal Skull, because Kingdom of Crystal Skull satisfied no one, yeah. is you get a film that might satisfy some Indiana Jones fans who are willing to sort of like go along for the ride and might satisfy some of the fans who just kind of hove in because it's hot outside and they want to sit inside for a few hours and they just, oh, I, I know that name. They might be like, oh, that was interesting enough. Who's this Indiana Jones character? I wonder if he's done things before. But what you get is this very mediocre film that straddles the line so hard that much like Crystal Skull, nobody's really satisfied. Nobody's angry like they were with Crystal Skull, but nobody is like walking out of this thing being like, damn, that was excellent. You know, yeah, I had moments where I was I was happy, where I was like, "This is this is what I I like to see in an Indiana Jones movie." But mm-hmm. it was always kind of coming off the back of something I don't want to see. Hey, everybody, editor Tim here, just cutting in to say that I'm going to cut this episode here, as we are getting started with our discussion of Dial of Destiny. We have a lot more to say, 
about Dial of Destiny, and I'm going to slice that together as its own episode, a sort of uh, Dial of Destiny-centric episode where we really delve into that film, and we will post that next time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.